Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, podcast on the Bible, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. This week, we're heading back to Greece to catch up with Dr. Creasy and his intrepid Logos travelers. But first, we want to let you know about an exciting new project we've just launched at LogosBibleStudy.com. It's titled The Psalms, A Journey Through the Poetry of Experience. It includes a 360-page ebook with all 150 psalms, plus Dr. Creasy's audio commentary on all of the psalms, written analysis of all 150 psalms, and a 50% discount code for our course on the story of King David in the Logos online classroom. That's a huge amount of material delivered in a simple, sleek format through the online classroom, and it's all for under $50. Go to logosbiblestudy.com psalms to get yours now. That's logosbiblestudy.com p-s-a-l-m-s. Join us on a profound journey through this extraordinary and beloved book. Now, it's time for the program. We'll catch up with Dr. Creasy in Thessalonica and Athens. So we have left Philippi. We drove to Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki, as it's called. So I would like to turn for us over to Acts 17. Acts 17. And I read to you. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now remember, there was no synagogue in Philippi, but Thessalonica is the second largest city in Greece in Paul's day and in ours. So they found a synagogue. And as was Paul's custom, he went into the Jewish synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So on three Sabbath days, Sabbath or Shabbat, begins at sundown on Friday and continues until sundown on Saturday. So for three days, Paul taught uh, in Thessalonica, and that was all. Now remember, he'll spend three years in Ephesus, but three days in Thessalonica. And he taught that Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Well, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So not a lot of Jews, but people who were Gentiles, who were drawn to the God of Judaism, were really open to the message. But other Jews were jealous. And that's not a particularly good word. They just did not like this new teaching being introduced in their community. And they formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. And if they had found them, they would have beaten them in front of the crowd. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here here with us. And this Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, that's a real issue. And we've looked at this in class many a time. What was the issue the Jews had with Jesus being the Messiah? Well, he he claimed to be the Messiah. So what? A lot of people claim to be the Messiah. And show your credentials. We'll talk about it. That was not an issue. He claimed to be the Son of God. Well, 
For some, that could certainly be viewed as blasphemy, but that wasn't the issue either. What was the issue? He claimed to be a king. He came into Palm Sunday and they proclaimed him king, son of David. And that, frankly, is treason. And if that continued, that would bring the Roman Empire down on this sect, this movement, within Judaism. It wasn't a separate movement. It was a movement within Judaism. It would have brought the Roman authorities down on Judaism like the wrath of God. It would be the end of their freedom to worship. It would be the end of everything for them. Remember the high priest on the night of Passover, just prior to that, they met in executive session. And what are we going to do with this guy? Because every day during Holy Week, Jesus escalated the encounter. He was not tamping it down. He was escalating it every single day. And if he comes back and does that again, there will be a bloodbath in this city. The Romans will shut down the entire temple operation. Our religious freedom will be gone and this city will go up in smoke. It will be the end. That's what's at stake, our very survival. So this whole movement developing, gaining speed, he's claiming to be a king. That is outright treason, and that's what they're afraid of. So, and they are here too. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. Well, when they heard this, the crowd and the officials were thrown into a turmoil. We don't need any of these radical people here to upset the nice place we have. They made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So three days, three Sabbath days in Thessalonica, that was it. But the message was treasonous and they didn't want these people around. So as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Now we drove just this morning from Thessalonica here to Berea, about an hour's drive west, right past the foot of Mount Olympus. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Again, Paul's typical method, go to the synagogue, teach in the synagogue, get thrown out of the synagogue sooner or later, teach in the marketplace, get beaten up, thrown in jail, and run out of town. And that's typically what happened. But listen to this, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness. They were eager to hear this. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now that is pretty cool. You know, Paul was saying something that was really on the far fringe of Judaism. Could he be right about this? Well, how do we know? Let's examine the scriptures and see what they say. Scripture is the benchmark of truth. If what he's saying is consistent with scripture, then you're on pretty solid ground. If what he's saying is not consistent with scripture, doesn't mean it's wrong, but you better check it out pretty carefully. And that's what they did here in Berea. And they were more noble than the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians didn't do that. They just leapt to the conclusion, these people are dangerous. We want them out of our town. As a result, here in Berea, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek uh, women and many Greek men, Gentiles. But when the Jews in Thessalonica 
learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, which is only an hour's drive down the road or a two-day walk. Some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. They, they showed up here and they said, these people were at our city, much bigger city in Thessalonica than Berea, and they are nothing but trouble. Let me tell you what happened in our place. So they stir up the trouble here. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed here at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So Paul is only in Thessalonica for three weeks, three Sabbath days. He taught three days. He's here a very brief period of time. They put him on board ship and send him down to Athens, south to Athens, where we're headed. We'll be there tonight. But, so what happened up here? How would you judge, if you were a teacher and you were evaluating Paul's uh, success on his missionary journey to Thessalonica and to Berea, how would you rate it? Uh, a C maybe, C minus, right? But Paul gets to Athens and then from Athens to Corinth. Now this is AD 50 to 52. He gets to Athens then Corinth. Once he's in Corinth, the people in Thessalonica, where he'd only been for three days, write him a letter. It shows up, presumably delivered by Silas and Timothy. It shows up, Paul reads it, and Paul responds to their letter from Corinth. And let me read the opening of that letter to you. First Thessalonians. Paul writes, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, because in Thessalonica they knew all three people, and I think it was Silas and Timothy who delivered letter number one. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice something there? Paul's in Corinth, okay? He's not yet written 1 Corinthians. That will be in the winter of 54. This is now early 52. And Paul said, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Faith, hope, love. He introduces it for the first time here in 1 Thessalonians. And he says, We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. And the word power in Greek is dunamis. We get the word dynamite from it, with explosive power. And the Holy Spirit, a deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake in only three weeks. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. 
And so you became, get this, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has become known everywhere. Therefore, we, we don't need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Their faith has, is known all over Macedonia and Achaia. That's all the way down into Athens. And Paul only spent three weeks there. And it wasn't like he just taught for a little bit, but it was accompanied by the power, the dynamite, the explosive power of the Holy Spirit. Something gigantic happened in Thessalonica. We have no idea what it was. But when Paul writes back to them, he says, I have never seen anything like it. Paul had done his first missionary journey. He had gone to, uh, to uh, Cyprus. He had gone to Antalya. Uh, he had gone to Perga, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all that, but nothing like this had ever happened. And notice, it even outshines Philippi. And that was a church that Paul really liked, because Paul really liked Lydia. <laughs> but he praises the Thessalonians much higher than even the people in Philippi. So something big, big happens there. Here in Berea, He's only here a very short period of time. The troublemakers in Thessalonica learned that Paul came here and they dogged his steps the whole way. So as I'm standing here talking with you, I'm like Paul talking to you, and all of a sudden here comes a rowdy crowd from Thessalonica up the steps and they start hurling stones at us and chase us out of town. And they have to get Paul out of town, get him on board a ship and get him down to Athens. And then Silas and Timothy finish up the work here. But we're, the, Think of, think of what this must have been like if we were traveling with Paul. If we were, if it was Paul, Silas, Timothy, Dr. Luke, and us. Imagine what we'd be witnessing. A, a truly explosive movement. And it will only continue to grow. So Paul will get to Athens. Not much happens in Athens. Wait till we go there. I'll tell you that story. But Corinth, Paul will spend 18 months in Corinth. And Corinth was a very, very troubled church. First and second Corinthians are not love letters to Corinth. They are a swift kick in the butt. And we'll do that, and we'll look at that when we get there. So, here we are in Berea. You look around, and nearly all the buildings are post-World War II. Uh, Berea suffered very badly during the Second World War. Most of the city was destroyed, and it's all been rebuilt uh, since. But this beautiful little park, uh, dedicated to St. Paul is a, a really nice place to come and, and remember Paul. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. This week, we're also posting a bonus episode, which includes Dr. Creasy's introduction to the Psalms, part of our new project, The Psalms, A Journey Through the Poetry of Experience, available now at LogosBibleStudy.com slash psalms. You'll find the bonus episode in your podcast feed. Now, back to the program. Welcome to Athens. When we left Paul in Berea, Paul was 
had fled Thessalonica because a mob was after him. They got out of town in Thessalonica in the middle of the night, went to Berea. Paul stayed there for a short time. And we learned that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they listened to what Paul had to say and they checked the scriptures every day to see if it was true. Hence, they were more noble than the Thessalonians. And Paul had pretty good success in Berea. But very quickly, the folks in Thessalonica, the mob, heard that Paul was in Berea and they sent people after him. As the mob arrives in Thessalonica, Timothy and Silas put Paul on board ship and send him down to Athens. So Paul arrives at Athens. Now we drove into Athens, we saw the Parthenon, we can see it out here behind us through the wild olive trees. And let me read you the story that happens here. So I'm reading from Acts 17, beginning at verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them, for Timothy and Silas in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, typically when you read that, you think, well, Paul is just shocked at the, at the pagan temples. No, Paul was from Tarsus, a very sophisticated cosmopolitan city, a city that we read eclipsed even Athens and Corinth in its love of learning and culture. Paul had seen many pagan temples, every city worth anything at all in Asia Minor had a temple to Diana uh, or Artemis and there were many this is a polytheistic culture it was part of the very essence of the world itself so Paul wasn't shocked to see the temple of Athena the Parthenon or or the temple of Zeus but I think when he came to Athens it was such a, a, a an important part of the ancient world the entire Greco-Roman culture emerged from Athens and when Paul saw the extent of polytheism in the Roman world, you know, he had seen it in other cities, but here in Athens, I think what he was shocked about was the magnitude of the job that needed to be done. Paul was going to Christianize the entire Roman Empire. Well, all right, you can do that city by city. And remember, he hadn't yet gotten to, uh, to Ephesus. But when he came here, it, just the magnitude of the job, I think, is what really shocked and dismayed him. How in the world am I going to accomplish this? It's like looking at a gigantic, huge pile of grain, and you can only take one grain at a time from it to remove it. How am I ever going to do this? And I think that was the dismay uh, that he experienced. So he went to the synagogue, as usual, and he reasoned with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, the Agora, day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul, as he usually did, started at the synagogue, taught in the synagogue. He was teaching in the Agora as well. And uh, things seemed to go pretty well. Now, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So in the Agora, the marketplace, as he's talking, someone said, oh, excuse me, and they asked him a question. And Paul replied, and someone said, no, 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 that's not right. And they de began debating uh, with each other. So the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began a debate. And some of them asked, what, what's this babbler trying to say? What's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating 
foreign gods. What's this babbler saying? Uh, the, the, Greek, the, the, the picture is this seed picker, like a chicken, you know, pecking the ground. So you can imagine Paul, when he's talking, gesturing and gesticulating and being real active, and they go, what's this seed picker trying to say? And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? So these are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, the intellectuals of Athens. And they invite Paul to a meeting of the Areopagus. I like to think of the Areopagus as the faculty club of Athens. Now, I've spent most of my adult life in a university setting. I didn't start college till I was 24. I spent six years in the Marine Corps first then started at 24 years old as a college freshman, went straight through a PhD and taught at UCLA ultimately for 28 years. So that was my life, the academic world. And, uh, and frankly, it's one I miss nowadays, but uh, I know it's a sad thing, but I, but I do, I do, I do, I do miss it. I miss going to the faculty club you know, for lunch, but uh, they invite Paul to the Areopagus the faculty club of Athens. And they say, may we hear what you have to say? You know, a good hearing uh, of what Paul is presenting. So, they said, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and would like to know more about them. Now, verse 21, and this is why I call the Areopagus the faculty club of Athens. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. <laughs> you could go to lunch at the faculty club at UCLA at 12 o'clock, and you wouldn't get out of there until 3 o'clock if you were sitting with the right people. And uh, that's what it was about. Well, so Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. Now notice, he has nothing planned. This was not a planned, uh, you know, an invitation uh, to an event three weeks from now. This was just an ad hoc talk that he gave. And uh, so he, uh, he said, all right, I'd be happy to do that. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, at, at the, the Parthenon, the Temple of Zeus, all the rest, he said, I, I noticed an altar with an inscription that said, to an unknown God. So he saw all these other temples, but there was an altar to an unknown God. And for Paul, that's the rhetorical hook. That's what he's going to build his talk on. And it's just off the top of his head. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you about that unknown God. So that's what he proceeds to do. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he gestures to the Parthenon, which is right over there. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. It's not that you have to offer sacrifices, as we can see in the temples all around. Rather, 
He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Well, I can see the people in the audience going, interesting proposition. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Hmm. Interesting concept. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And when Paul says that, he's quoting from the 6th century BC Cretan poet Epimenides. Who can do that? Paul, that's the, the depth of his knowledge about classical literature and also rhetoric, as we see putting this talk together. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by human design and skill, again, gesturing to the Acropolis. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Literally, God winked at such ignorance, as if it was a charming ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Again, this is pretty interesting stuff. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And at that, you heard people go, <laughs> and he lost them. Right there, he lost them. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we'd like to hear more on this subject later as they usher him from the lectern. <laughs> and at that, Paul left the Areopagus, the faculty club, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed, well, not many. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a few others. Hardly anything. Hardly anything. Well, I know exactly what happened here in Athens at the Areopagus. When I started graduate school, the PhD program at UCLA, I was given very good advice when I was deciding to go into academics. Apply to the 10 best programs in your field in the country. If you get in, go. If you don't, do something else. You don't want to spend your entire career teaching remedial English in you know, Arkansas Community College. 10 best programs. So I did. I got into six of them, and only one of them gave me a full scholarship and a job, basically a free education, and that was UCLA. So that's where I went. And um, I, was, I was coming from Arizona State University, and I was moving into the big leagues at UCLA, and uh, I was real nervous about it. But I worked very hard the first uh, year or so, and there was an, a group, an organization at UCLA, that had been founded by the English department chairman before my generation. He had passed away before I actually got there. Jimmy Phillips, wonderful man, I was told. And his wife, Geneva Phillips, 
was still alive and she hosted a group that Jimmy had started back in the early 50s called the Neo Areopagus. The Neo Areopagus. And it was selected faculty members from different departments who would meet quarterly. They would have a dinner together at Mrs. Phillips' home, beautiful home in Brentwood. And, uh, and then they would have a discussion. Someone would present uh, a talk and then have a discussion about it. Very civilized thing. Well, I was a teaching assistant and I went to my mailbox in the office and I was getting the mail out and here was a very nice envelope with my name written on it and I opened it and it was from Mrs. Phillips. And it was an invitation to come to the meeting of the Neo Areopagus that quarter. And I thought, well, that's really nice. I'll go up to her office. She had an office in the department and I'll thank her for it. And I did. And I, I was just really honored to be invited to it. And she said, and would like you to speak to us. <laughs> I was a second year graduate student. And uh, at that point, I had been really looking at the Bible as literature, as a literary work. And that was kind of the cutting edge of biblical criticism at the time. Uh, there was a new periodical called Semia, which was a journal of experimental scholarship in biblical literature. And it was really the leading edge of criticism at the time. So I said, I'd love to. <laughs> the day came and I, had a, I went out and bought a suit and I was all ready and I showed up. And, and I had been developing this whole concept that the Bible, following Robert Alter and Northrop Fry, that the Bible, although written by many different people over about 1,500 years in many different genres of literature, the Bible, as we've experienced it as readers, is a unified literary work. And the curtain goes up in Genesis, it comes down in Revelation, in between there's a linear narrative the main character is God, the conflict is sin, and the theme is redemption. There is a unified set of symbols and images that run all through Scripture. And no one ever talked about anything like that. Well, that's what I was going to talk about. And I gave that very talk that I just did. And I said, uh, and in understanding Scripture, engaging it, there are four foundational principles. Number one. The Bible is rooted in geography. The place is important. And that's why we do, do these tours, right? To be here, to see things, and actually know that this is where things happen. When Paul was speaking to the Areopagus, the breeze was blowing from that direction. It, it adds color, tone, and texture to the text. Number two, the Bible is, emerges from history. These are real people in real times who did real things. And if we don't understand the historical and cultural context, we will never understand scripture. Number three, the Bible is a unified literary work. Though written by many people and so on, it's a unified literary work. And they are really listening intently. And they're, they're, they're nodding and that's good, I like that. And then I said in principle number four, the Bible is the word of God. And at that, I heard, <laughs> and, and, and someone went, uh, 
And Mrs. Phillips, oh, God bless her. Um, I, I started to get into that point, and, uh, and, she, and she looked at her watch, and she said, uh, she said, we'd love to hear a lot more about that later on. <laughs> and to this day, I've never been invited back to the Neo area office. <laughs> so that's exactly what happened to Paul right here at Mars Hill in Athens. All right. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy. Remember, The Psalms, A Journey Through the Poetry of Experience, is available now with a beautiful ebook including all 150 psalms, plus Dr. Creasy's audio and written commentary, and a special discount on further study. Get yours now at logosbiblestudy.com slash psalms. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.